0: Okay, Jesse, you know I love a determined detective. Last week was pretty inspiring. What's the story this time around? When a toxic relationship between coworkers
1: goes off the rails, the evil lovers prey on the most vulnerable with devastating consequences. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder.
0: Andy. Hi, Jesse.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad matches, worse
0: ideas, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And
1: as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, this week, the reviews were off the chain. Yeah, do people were-
0: still say that? Off the I chain? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> you might have just aged us. <laughs> um, no, they were incredible. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you guys. Also, if you're interested in supporting both of us and the show in a more direct way, head on over to Patreon.com slash lovemurderpod and you can learn all about the different tiers and the benefits and all of the fun things that you can do as a patron. Speaking of Patreon, as always, we are
1: honored to welcome a bunch of new patrons.
0: We want to give a little shout out and thank you to Margarita T. and Bridget F. Yeah, another big thank you. We actually got some
1: mail for the first time ever. So fun. So fun. So big thanks to Madeline for sending us a postcard. And Amanda K. for the best
0: sequined Nicolas Cage pillow cover for Andy. It's the one where his face just bleeds out into the rest of the the pillow. (laughs) It's like a square face. Yeah, we'll take a picture and put it on the Instagram. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Like, I should have it actually on this
1: chair with you. You should have it. I need to take a picture of you on that chair. And we're together, which is oh, wild. Yeah. yeah, so we're together. So, big thanks. Also, she sent me the serial killer cookbook, and it has all of some terrible people's last meals before they were executed, which, which is your fascination. It, I am so fascinated by that. So, thank you so much, Amanda Kay. And to thank you, we are covering your request this week. So, if you're timing, yeah, if you guys are horrified and angered by this story, which you probably will be, you can just blame Amanda for that. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I gave like Andy, I was like, just so you know, it's going to be a sensitive one today, but it is a very compelling story. And I think at the end, hopefully, there'll be a little ray of sunshine that we can bring back. So, let's just get into it. A rainbow, if you will. A rainbow, yes. After the rain comes the rainbow. Oh, and speaking of rainbows, happy pride. That was where I was going. (laughs) That was a good setup. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Gwendolyn Graham was very attracted to Kathy Wood. She could feel that Kathy was attracted to her as well. It was 1986 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the two were chatting in the break room of the Alpine Manor, a nursing home and care facility where they both worked as nurses' aides. Well, Kathy was far from Gwen's dream girl. She was slightly older, lots larger, nearly six foot to Gwen's five three. Whoa. And already married to a man with a young daughter. There was just something about her. She was wild, funny, charismatic, and bright. Kathy dyed her hair Marilyn Monroe blonde and carried her larger frame with the grace of an ingenue. There was just something powerfully compelling about her. And she wasn't just dropping hints that she was interested in Gwen, she was lobbing them right over home plate. (laughs) Kathy confided that the woman she had left her husband for just wasn't doing it for her anymore. There was an aloof, almost dangerous allure to Gwen, a recent transplant from Texas. Kathy wanted, no, she needed to know more. As Gwen fell into that first illicit kiss, she knew she was in trouble this relationship was going to go deep. Her prediction came true with shocking speed as the couple moved in together the very next day. Oh my God. That's some serious you hauling right yes, there. Yes. After the first kiss. A relationship that was supposed to be built on safety, love, and trust soon devolved into one fraught with obsession, pain, and abuse. The dark, ruinous poison of this love affair gone wrong would spill over to taint the lives of friends and coworkers. And then when that wasn't enough, to the most vulnerable population they could reach, their elderly Alzheimer's patients. Not cool. Real people who had lived, loved, worked hard, raised good families and deserved the best and most sensitive end of life care possible. To be treated with dignity as we age is something we all deserve. To be able to expect that from the caregivers who treat our parents and grandparents, that they should do so with respect, should absolutely be a given. Yes. And that's what makes today's case so stomach churning. So get ready to get Andy, your angerometer, tripped and hug y'all's grandmothers a little bit tighter because we are going to jump right into this intensely twisted tale couple trigger warnings. We've got a trigger warning for elder abuse. There's some child abuse and there's a brief mention of possible sexual abuse. So let's start with Kathy. Katherine May Carpenter was born on March 7th, 1962 and raised in a suburb of Grand Rapids called Comstock Park. Her father drove a lift truck in a food warehouse and her mother was a bookkeeper. It was both a religious and unhappy upbringing. Kathy was the eldest and she was forced to take care of her younger siblings while her parents worked long hours. She also struggled with her weight from a very young age, a condition her parents exacerbated with physical and emotional abuse. One of Kathy's aunts would later say that her earliest memory of Kathy was when she was only three or four years old. The aunt was hosting dinner and as it finished up, little Kathy asked for an extra portion of fruit salad. Her father then proceeded to scoop up extra large portions of every dish on the table and heap it onto her plate. He then called Kathy a fat little pig and told her to eat every last bite. Oh my
0: God, that's horrible,
1: horrible. And the entire family is sitting around watching this. She just wanted fruit salad, you dick. Yeah, like it gets even worse. So of course she started crying and when she wouldn't stop crying, he slapped her straight across the face.
0: I mean, that's it's like so predictable.
1: The aunt tried to intervene, but her brother would not let her, and she was forced to watch the child attempt to choke down the food while she was trying to stop crying. Oh, my God. That's horrible. She described Kathy's mother as cold and said that the child was emotionally starved. So it is no wonder that Kathy grew up to be insecure about her size. By the time she was a junior in high school, she was just a little shy of six feet and about 180 pounds Which, by the way, is... Totally a healthy weight for when you're six foot. It is like, even though I don't believe in the BMI system because it doesn't account for muscle versus fat, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not always an indicator of perfect health. Even if you're going by that metric, she's healthy. Yeah. You know, there's nothing to feel like unhealthy about or insecure about in that size. But I do
0: think that like when you're an extreme of anything, whether you're extremely short, you're extremely tall in high school, it's just you're always open to being picked on. Yes and feeling othered
1: yes yeah she met her future husband Ken Wood the very first week of 1979 when she called to talk to his younger brother and the guy wasn't home but Ken was Ken stayed on the line chatting with Kathy for five hours hilarious Ken was struck by how witty and irreverent Kathy was he thought that she was extremely bright and intelligent he was shocked when she turned out to be only 17 to his 20. The two began dating, and they found that they had a lot in common. They both had troubled childhoods where they were basically forced into a parental position because they raised their younger siblings, and it forced them into too much responsibility at a young age. They also were both really tall. He was also just over six feet, I think, and they had like this kind of awkwardness to them that they both masked with a lot of humor. Okay. And that's how they expressed it, as well as the fact that neither of them had dated all that much when they met each other. Ken fell effortlessly in love with Kathy, but very quickly came to realize that she liked to play games and especially enjoyed testing his loyalty and love, Hmm. which also comes from a place of insecurity. She would do things like make her girlfriends call Ken and hit on him while she was secretly on the extension so she could spy on how he reacted.
0: Oh, that's not healthy. Not
1: healthy at all. She also was constantly trying to quantify or qualify his love by saying, you know, do you love me as much as your friends, as your parents, as your siblings? Do you love me as much as God? I mean, there was like this constant need for affirmation. Yeah. And it seemed like. Nothing was ever enough, but Ken felt like he understood her because they had talked so deeply about their traumatic childhoods, yeah, that he was like, she just never got love. She just wants somebody to show her love. So he was very understanding about this, but this became a little bit tested when she lied about an altercation with her parents in order to get him to ask her to move in with him, okay, because he had his own apartment, so she made up this whole situation and said that basically her parents were not going to let her see him anymore and he was like well screw that why don't you just come live with me and she was like okay and they'd only been dating for two months at that point yeah she was also still in high school and only days after she moved in she revealed that she was pregnant oh no so ken was totally thrown for a loop they had only been seeing each other like i said for two months and they had only had sex maybe six times they said potentially a half dozen times oh by the way my sources today are an incredible book. I guess that, that this guy has a lot more true crime stories and I am very eager to read them because this was amazing coverage. It's called Forever and Five Days by Lowell Caulfield. And I also watched a show called License to Kill. It's on Oxygen, a season two, episode eight, Match made in Hell. And it is hosted. It's all about medical staff type true crime. So doctors, nurses, etc., And the guy who hosts it is Terry Dubrow from Botched.
0: No way. Yeah. Oh it's really,
1: God. yeah. But it's funny because you see him in a totally, like he's totally serious. Yeah. It's like very straight face because obviously this is a different serious. type of thing. Yeah. yeah, But I would recommend it though. They had family members on and I thought that the coverage was actually pretty well done for like one of those, you know, kind of reenactment-y type yeah. shows. Yep. Yeah. So back to the tale. He finds out she's pregnant. And they've only had sex a handful of times and they've just barely started dating. So he's like, I hate to do this to you, but are you positively sure that I'm the dad? And at that question, she just completely lost it. She burst into tears. She was like, you're the only man I've ever been with, or at least only real man. Yeah. And so he's like, wait, only real man? What are you talking about? And she's like, I can't believe you're questioning me. I mean, I have always had such bad luck with dating and people have always deceived me. And he basically had to like dig deep to get her to come out with it. What was really bothering her? And she revealed to him that her first sexual experience had actually been a very traumatic deception. Kathy told Ken that when she was about 14 or 15, she had had a relationship with a cute boy named David. They had eventually made love, but she said David had demanded that she basically not look at or touch his penis when he penetrated her. She said later that she found out from her mother who talked to his mother that he was actually a she, David was Debbie, and that the penis had been a dildo. Okay, yeah, Yeah. that's what I figured. Now, this would be a shocking deceit. Had it been true, stop it. Later on in this tale, you'll see why, but the story came out. It was publicized as trying to explain why Kathy was the way Kathy was. And she told the police this story. It came out in the trial, not to spoil it for you guys. And the real Debbie came forward and said, I know Kathy. I was maybe a little boyish looking, and I dated one of Kathy's friends, but everything else she said is a wild and blatant fabrication.
0: Yeah. Called a fantasy. Yes. None of that happened. Yeah. 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 That was a total, like... Total fantasy. Subconscious fantasy that she created to be real.
1: Yes. And that's, I mean, Kathy is a pathological liar. Okay. And I think that she is just... Psychopathic enough to believe her lies. So she's going to trap this boy. Yeah. So she did use it, I guess, to show Ken how tragic and hurtful her past was and how shocking it was. It's a lie. But it's a lie. So she was using it to emotionally manipulate him. Yes. Yes. And so he felt like, oh, this poor girl has been like used and abused by everyone that has promised to love her. And so I'm going to step up and I'm going to be the one. Who takes care of her. Yeah, because he's a
0: decent human, but he's also a kid.
1: He's a kid himself. He's only 20 years old. So he proposed on the spot and he worked for General Motors. So the couple was married at the United Automobile Workers Union Hall in August of 1979. Okay. So they met in January. By August, they are married and they're just about to have a kid. So their daughter, Jackie, was born and it was really tough. The whole pregnancy, birth, Early babyhood experience for Kathy and Ken was extremely hard. So Kathy ended up gaining over a hundred pounds during her pregnancy,
0: oh, which obviously six foot already.
1: Yep, yeah, and it's not healthy to gain that much weight. So it led to some complications. Her birth went over three days of agonizing labor, and then it ended in a emergency C section.
0: Yep she was exhausted probably.
1: Yep. And Kathy just seemed – she had been excited about the pregnancy, but she seemed to not be able to bond with Jackie. Okay. And she was disinclined basically to do anything around the house.
0: I've honestly heard that that's so normal with emergency C-sections for Mm -hmm. the mom to take a little bit longer to bond with the kid because you're literally physically like not even able to move.
1: It's a traumatic experience And it should be –
0: like the mother should be comforted with that because it's like not – I think obviously we're talking so much more about it now, but it shouldn't be something that any like young mom is afraid of.
1: Yeah. And we should not perpetuate the lie that you're supposed to be blissfully in love with your child yeah. the moment they come it's out. It's
0: ridiculous. Yeah.
1: It's hard. It's hard work and bonding takes time. Yes,
0: it should. Yes.
1: But yeah, in Kathy's situation, she never really got there. Okay. Yeah. She has a very selfish way of being that does not lend itself well to motherhood. Yeah. And she wasn't really interested in... On her own. Not
0: because she's a mom now, yeah, but like as not, a human. Yeah. yeah, as a human. Yes. It was because
1: of her not not like your run-of-the-mill, just like normal woman who does want to be a good mom, but just having a hard time yep. in the postpartum yes. state. Yeah. Just, Kathy's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> and she was n- never really like stepped up. Yeah. And she also like didn't do anything around the house. Like Ken talked about in the book, like how not only did she not become a homemaker... She would literally like leave her dishes on the living room floor for him to trip over. Stop. It was things like he would said you had to like walk through the kitchen to like get to the stairs to go upstairs. Like he's like, you have to literally walk through the kitchen. Why can't you just put it in the sink? And she didn't cook. So he was always bringing fast food home. And that won't help with the weight. No. And he gained 100 pounds. Yeah. He gained 100 pounds from eating the fast food all the time. And she ended up getting up to 450 pounds. Yes, yeah. really? Yeah. So now you can imagine it was a dark time in the marriage. They're both depressed. This is really hard. Yeah. They barely knew each other when they got pregnant and got married. And Kathy was pretty mentally unwell and obviously insecure about her appearance because it had been a thorny issue her entire life. Yep. So she at that point just never wanted to leave the house. She became almost like agoraphobic. Yeah. Because she didn't want anyone to see her. Yeah. So Ken finally convinced her that she needed to do something healthy for herself and go back to school. She's very, very bright. Everyone who knew her, instructed her, taught her at all, said that she could have been a nurse, an RN, a doctor even maybe. She was so bright, but she just never put in the work.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to put in the work if you want to do anything. Exactly. So
1: (laughs) she went back to school at Davenport College, and then she also started working the night shift as a nurse's aide at a care facility called Alpine Manor. And Alpine Manor is very much a nursing home. This is a place for people who have Alzheimer's, cancer, fairly terminal issues. A lot of people who are like, this is their last stop. Yeah. It's not exactly like what we think of like retirement communities today are popping. Yeah. Like they're really fun. I I always tell Nathaniel, I'm like, I kind of want to like... Be in a fun retirement community when I get older, but yeah, this is the place for people who need round-the-clock medical attention. Yes, yeah, which requires caregivers that are very dedicated. Yep, all the time. So, despite what was described as a pretty big lack of empathy, Kathy did enjoy the work. She did enjoy the patients, and she especially liked her coworkers. Between school and work, Kathy gained a whole new lease on life. She lost over 150 pounds, and she really found her confidence again. As their seven-year wedding anniversary approached, Ken felt like the relationship was finally turning into something that resembled a healthy marriage. She was in school. She was working. He had a good job at GM. They had moved into this nice little house that was actually owned by Kathy's mother, but as a result, they paid very little rent. Little Jackie was doing well, and it seemed like to Ken that things were really looking up for the little family, but he was very, very wrong. 24-year-old Kathy became a queen bee on the third shift at Alpine Manor. Her cutting wit and charisma made her a standout. Coworkers began to gravitate toward her. When 18-year-old Dawn Male, a punk rock-loving, leather-wearing lesbian with a drinking problem sounds like a, a country or rock song right there, When she started working at the Alpine Manor, she knew that Kathy was a whole vibe. Could
0: spot her a mile away.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Not only was Kathy quick and witty, she was up in everybody's business and knew all the hot gossip and every dirty secret. Now, as it turned out, some of these
0: things were just blatantly untrue. Okay, I was going to say, what are the hot, dirty secrets that are happening at the (laughs) nearly hospice center? You
1: will be shocked, Andrea. (laughs) There is so much dirty, nasty shenanigans going on at this place. All true. A lot of it is very true. So she made up some shit. She was like a one-woman rumor factory, and she instigated a lot of drama. Yeah. However, these people were uh, like pulling their own weight on and getting up to some not so good stuff. Some dirty hijinks. Some dirty hijinks. But yeah, back to Kathy. She, because she kind of manipulated everyone around her and she was like the source of everything, she became like kind of like the mean girl, the Regina George. Everyone wanted her attention, but they also kind of loathed her. Yeah. So Dawn said, when you were around her, it was like she was the most popular kid in school and you were the unpopular kid, the one who didn't have any friends. You wanted very much for her to like you. You wanted to be able to do things with her. You wanted very much to be her friend. And if you were, you were very much proud of that. Kathy began opening up to Dawn on a very personal basis. This is from Lowell Caulfield's account. She told her about problems that she was having at home. She said her husband was a tyrant. He had ruined her life. She had a daughter, but wished she was a better mother. Her childhood was full of horrors. She explained her father was a drunk. Her mother made her feel insecure, fat, and unwanted. She had spent her high school years basically sequestered in her room. And Dawn felt somehow proud of her, like that she had overcome that, that she now was the strong woman in front of her. And she liked the fact that she was both vulnerable and strong, beautiful, but also insecure. She actually reminded physically, not at all, but like the whole package reminded her of Marilyn Monroe. Okay. Because that was Dawn's favorite celebrity by a million. And she was like, not really even Marilyn, Norma Jean. Okay. That like whole complicated mess of confidence and beauty, but also inside just kind of an insecure thing. So it did not take Dawn and Kathy very long to start an affair. Uh, obviously. Yeah. Ken soon noticed a change in his wife. All of a sudden, she has mandatory staff meetings at all hours of the day or night. And comes back very happy. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Yeah, and she began going to the one gay bar in town that was called The Carousel. And she would, like, tease him by being like, all these women at work are interested in me. And they had kind of limped along the last few years with a mostly vanilla once a month type of sex life. Yeah. And all of a sudden she's real horned up. And she's like, for your 28th birthday, do you want me to like bring another girl home? And he's like, what? And then she like one night they were going out on a date. Like her mother was watching their kid. And she's like, why don't we go to the like porno movie theater instead of the regular movies? And he's like, what is going on here? And when he said no, she's like, I guess I'll just go with my friends. He's like, you're going to go with your friends to see a porno movie? She's like, yeah. So he is like, what
0: is going on with my wife? Because like when you're getting some, it's not like you stay the same. You like are more turned on by everything. Like it turns everything on. It turns it up to 11. Yes, yes. Not 10. Can it go up
1: to 11? This one goes to 11. 11. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. It really is. It's a thing that starts. It's like – um. Momentum. Yes. You get that yeah. momentum going and you want the it all libido The libido just
0: increases Exactly. Everything. Yeah. And if your partner's not the one that's doing it, they're going to be like, ah. Um. They're a little taken aback by all of a sudden this
1: firestorm of pussy flying at their face. <gasps> yeah. Oh, well, speaking of pussies flying onto people's faces, the last straw for Ken came when Kathy went out with her friends and did not come home for three days. What? Three full days. She's like, I'm ending my shift. Yes, I'm going to go so out for drinks. Just and give a fuck. she no yeah. longer cares. Also, think about that. She has a child. I know. To like just that. not come home for three days. I mean, guys do it all the time. <laughs> I think men do it a lot more. Literally. It's like, it's somehow more shocking when a mother does
0: it. Yeah, but if she's not She was not motherly. the primary yeah.
1: caretaker at that exactly. point anyway. So he was so furious when she finally came home that he said, that's it, I'm moving out. And he took Jackie and went to a motel and he got her settled into the motel and tried to start figuring out where they were gonna go. And he realized, I guess the um, AC wasn't working. It was over the summer, the AC wasn't working. And he was like, I have a box fan at home. I'm gonna go get it. So he went home and he walked in on Don and Kathy and flagrante, And he was furious. Really? Yeah. He was like, this is why you're ending seven years of marriage for your little girlfriend. Like, seriously? And she was like, yeah. And I want a divorce. So get out of my house. She did not care at all that this was the father of her child. That they had been married for seven years. That they're at
0: a motel with no AC.
1: Yeah. She doesn't care. She just wants to party and get it on. This story gets wild. So apparently there was like a whole bunch of gay folk on the late shift and they did indeed like to party. There were women leaving their husbands for their female coworkers, just like Kathy did. There were dramatic fights as partners swapped and jealousy was provoked. And Kathy's house became a hotbed for drinking, drugs and crazy sex, <sighs> as well as fist fights out in the street apparently ken was finding out from his neighbors that there was like women making out all over the place like out in the neighborhood and then fights were breaking out and they're literally fist fighting and they're like what is going on over your house ken and he's like it's not my house anymore oh my goodness yeah dawn moved in and the new couple began to indulge in bondage Deep scratching and hickeys, which I don't get. What? Yeah. This is a kink of Kathy's. She likes to mark her lovers very much. Like really, really deep, deep scratching.
0: That's really grosses me out. It
1: really grosses me out. I mean, out hickeys too.
0: like when they happen naturally are hot. You yeah. Know? Like But if you're, you're like just...
1: sucking on somebody for the purpose of creating yeah, a, a yeah. bruise, yuck. And also lesbian three-ways. Which is, that's, I mean, par for course. Yeah. Soon, a new employee came onto the scene. Her name was Gwen. And Dawn actually slept with Gwen first.
0: That makes sense. Yeah.
1: So Dawn ended up having like a one night stand type of situation with Gwen. But they pretty quickly figured out that, well, they both knew that they were attracted to women basically as soon as they had a conscious thought. So like they were like very secure in being a lesbian. They were too similar to be together. Okay. They liked the same types of girls. Yeah. And they were both like definitely more comfortable being on like the masculine side of things. And they were attracted to women that were like more on the feminine end of the spectrum. Yep. Which was, of course, Kathy. So yeah, they liked the same type and then they liked the same gal. So after Dawn was fired for drinking on the job at a mm, nursing not home.
0: cool. Not <sighs> cool.
1: Kathy began to lose interest. I think she liked what was in front of her. She liked somebody to flirt with on shift. And Dawn was a teenager. I mean, Dawn was 18 years old. Gwen was- So she
0: shouldn't even be drinking at all. She
1: should not be. Although there was a time in the United States that the drinking age was 18. I'm not sure about the 80s if it still was. In any case, Dawn was figuring stuff out. And basically Kathy's like, I don't want this teenager who's messed up at my house anymore. Yeah. And Gwen was 22. Kathy's 24 at this point. They seem to have more in common. And Gwen had like a charm to her. She had like this like rakish quality. Like there was something kind of like stoic and strong and like mysterious. Okay. And so Kathy basically was like, I'm trading Don in for Gwen. Okay. And that's what's happening. Which is essentially what she did. It was like Dawn's out, and two hours later, Gwen's in. I'd
0: like to cash in my Dawn chips.
1: (laughs) That was exactly what she did, yes. So what is Gwen's deal? Gwendolyn Graham was a 22-year-old from Tyler, Texas, though she had grown up all around the country. I think she was actually born in Santa Monica, California. Really? Yeah. she had also served on some Christian missionary trips internationally. So she had kind of been all over the place. Just like Kathy, though, Gwen had had an abusive childhood. Okay. In fact, I think hers was even worse, even though you cannot quantify yeah. or qualify abuse. It's just, it's all bad. Gwen's mother admitted that she offered Gwen almost zero affection growing up. She refused to hug, hold, or comfort Gwen in any way, including when she was a small baby. Oh, my God. She said later that she was told by her husband, they later separated of the time, that to hold children would be to spoil them. Wow. Yeah. She said later on, and it turns out I was watching the TV the other day, and it turns out the holding kids doesn't spoil them. Apparently, you're supposed to do it. Oh,
0: my God. Did she have, like, no friends?
1: I do not know. I think that she was very, very young, because it said that she had, like, three or four kids by the time she was 21. Yeah. So I think she was really listening to her husband about everything. And she had three kids in less than four years. So Gwen's mom admitted that she didn't have a lot of patience. She didn't have a lot of affection for her kids and that Gwen was constantly crying even when she was dry and fed because of course she wanted comfort. She wanted love. She was crying for affection, but she wouldn't give it to her. And instead she would get annoyed with her crying. And at 18 months, she started beating Gwen with an electrical cord every time she cried.
0: An electrical cord. Yeah.
1: And they also were very big fans of corporal punishment. It was like, if you step out of line, you get a whooping, that type of situation. So her dad would spank her with a belt. And they did this up until she was 18 years old. You should never hit your kids. But like verges on very bizarre when it's like a full grown adult bending over their dad's lap to get spanked with a belt yeah so this was her type of upbringing and it showed on her body her misery because she had cigarette burns all up and down her arms oh my god that's so fucked up and when people asked her she would say like well my dad has a funny sense of humor and that usually got people to back off yeah people she was intimate with would later reveal two different stories. So this is where the trigger warning for sexual abuse comes in. It was either that her father did the burns to her, like as some sort of punishment, or that he was sexually abusing her and she was so screwed up over it that she was self-harming by putting out the cigarettes on herself. Yeah, okay. Which she does have a... I should have triggered word self-harm too. But yeah, she does have a tendency even in adulthood to self-harm at this point. Yeah. So we don't know, but either one of those are horrifying possibilities. Mm. After completing high school in Texas, Gwen worked odd jobs until she saw an advertisement for Davenport College's paramedic program. She moved to Grand Rapids for school and then she took a job at Alpine Manor. The relationship between Kathy and Gwen initially kind of seemed maybe healthy for both of them. They settled into a domestic life. They loved to do crossword puzzles together. They felt very comfortable sharing their childhood traumas. They got very intimate very quickly. Gwen talked about everything that happened in her childhood. And Kathy had always been so insecure about her body that she had never actually been fully undressed with anyone, even her husband, even her lover, Dawn. she had always kept some articles of clothing on when they made love. And Gwen was the first person who was like, you are gorgeous. Like, let's take a shower together. Let's yep. explore each other's bodies. Let's like, you know, you're lovely. You're wonderful. And it was the first person that Kathy felt comfortable yep. revealing her whole self inside and out to. So this was a very heady, like thrilling experience for both women. It was almost like a first love Especially for Kathy, who I think this was the type of relationship I feel like she had always wanted to be in. Yeah. Which she hadn't been able to express earlier or even probably known earlier that this was what she wanted. And they had pet names for each other. They were very teenage-like in their love for one another. Like I said, the Hickey's can't keep their hands off of each other, making out at work. Yeah, Very teenager-y type stuff. What were their pet names? It was Bunny Foo Foo, which is what Kathy called Gwen, and Gwen called Kathy like her pretty girl, and also later on, so like rat girl or something, because she always ratted people out at work. Speaking of which, it was a total shit show at Alpine Manor, because it seemed like Kathy was always at the center of all this drama and there was so much drama, like reading about it. I'm going to give you guys like a little bit of breakdown about some of the nonsense that was going on at this place later on. But it really did seem like instead of a nursing home with adults, it seemed like some sort of bar where teenagers and early 20 somethings are working and all sleeping with each other.
0: Yeah, like a social club.
1: Yeah, it's like Vanderpump rules, (laughs) but like low rent going on over here. Kathy was always at the center of it. She loved screwing with people. She would rat people out to superiors, hence the nickname. She would write anonymous letters to husbands who were getting cheated on to tell on their wives. She spread gossipy lives.
0: So she's like Sheena. <laughs> yes. if there's,
1: so She's a potster. And she just made up a lot of this shit, too. And she was really... Rough if you crossed her. She would destroy your life. Her ex lover, Dawn, said about Kathy she played mind games inside the nursing home and out. The object of the games was not only to see if people would believe you, but to make it as entangled as possible. She liked to play with people for sport.
0: Oh, she's like a spider. Yeah.
1: A number of Kathy's friends were awed by her ability to disrupt the lives of others. Gwen once complained to Kathy that another Alpine aide named Lisa Lynch was being too chummy. Kathy said that she was going to come up with a plan. First, she planted unfounded information around the nursing home that a pregnant girl in their social circle was carrying the child of Lisa's husband. Kathy settled a score with the pregnant girl as well. She suspected that she had slept with Dawn when they were roommates and lovers. Soon, Lisa and her husband were headed for divorce and the pregnant girl was ostracized.
0: wow. That's so fucked up.
1: She got two people in one game that time, Dawn later said. Gwen later told somebody how she was taken with her cunning. Everybody was scared of her. Kathy would fuck with you. That was just her thing, and everybody knew it. It kind of made me feel good, though, because she was my girl. And as long as she was my girl, nobody was going to fuck with me either.
0: Yeah, until she's not your girl. Exactly. (sighs) She was also still
1: screwing with
0: Ken. So
1: she just loved emotional warfare. She would, whenever she got bored, just start toying with him again. She would tell him, Things with Gwen weren't going to work out, and that she wanted him back. And she'd be like, "Let's let's meet up and let's talk about maybe getting back together. And meet me at a bar at this address." And then it would be the gay bar, and she'd like walk in with Gwen and be like, "Oh yeah, no,
0: it's and, also hard because yeah. they have a kid together too. So
1: so it's he like, has to engage yes, with her, of course. But she was basically just now a full on absentee mother at this point, unfortunately." Yeah. It was just a mess. But Kathy was about to get a taste of her own medicine when her lover Gwen found herself attracted to yet another new girl at Alpine Manor. Uh oh! This time it was a 20-year-old virginal former cheerleader named Heather with blonde hair and a voluptuous figure. Dawn later said about Heather, she was just a very normal girl. She was really pretty, really popular. She was a nice girl until she met us. We were just so messed up back then. And anyone who came into contact with us also got messed up. Sad. She goes by a pseudonym in the book. I think her real name is Heather based on different articles that I read. She goes by Robin in the book, but I'm going to call her Heather because and just not reveal her last name. Cool. Cool. Yeah, she participated in Lowell Caulfield's book, too. And she had never been with a man or a woman when she started Alpine Manor. She was very naive, very innocent. And she got kind of swept into this world with these wild co-workers. And there wasn't, like, regret. I mean, there will be about certain situations. But she just said she didn't know any better. Like, she didn't know what she liked. She didn't feel like she was doing anything, like, wrong because she didn't even know if she was attracted to men or women. But I'm a cheerleader. Yes, it's very, but I'm a cheerleader. So when she started and they invited her over to Kathy's house to have drinks, like welcome drinks, apparently everyone was getting loaded. And some people heard Gwen saying, even though she's dating Kathy, I've got dibs on the new girl. She's all mine. Nobody touch her. Yikes. And it got back to Heather who was kind of like oh maybe I'm interested I don't know yeah but it also got back to Kathy
0: yep I don't know why Gwen's fucking with Kathy when she knows that she's what she can do yeah uh, yeah
1: it's basically Gwen said something to Kathy like when Kathy confronted her she was like look I love you and I think that what we have is really special but I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to be faithful yeah okay I've never been faithful to a partner before I don't plan on being faithful. It just is part of me. And so if you want to be with me, you have to understand that I might have these meaningless flings from time to time. That was not going to fly with Kathy.
0: I would imagine that was not well received.
1: This was now we're coming up on Christmas and she became obsessed with keeping Gwen faithful, keeping Gwen to herself, making sure that Gwen stayed in the relationship. She was so single-minded about her relationship and her love life that she didn't even get a present for her daughter or visit her at Christmas I mean that's how self and love obsessed she was so sad yeah so at this point Kathy begins to come up with all of these different schemes and manipulations to try to make Gwen stay with her So at that same Christmas, a woman named Jan Hunderman was bringing holiday cheer to her beloved mother, a resident at Alpine named Marguerite Chambers. Marguerite was only 60 years old, but she suffered from Alzheimer's and now was unable to communicate and required around-the-clock care. Okay. Marguerite had once been the life of every party. She was spontaneous, she was fun, and she was kind. She absolutely adored going out dancing. That was her jam. And her husband, when he had been alive, used to take her out religiously every week for date night, no matter what. Like, they would drive through snowstorms to go dancing because it was her happy thing. Cute. But when Jan married her first husband in 1970, she recalled sending her mother home to collect some plates to bring to the event hall where the reception was being held. And her mother turned up later really confused. And she said to her, it's the strangest thing I got all the way home and I could not for the life of me remember why I was standing in my house and what I needed to bring. So she came back empty-handed And at the time, Jan just was like, oh, I mean, I guess she's had a lot going on. This wedding planning, you know, she's probably a little scatterbrained.
0: uh, Yeah, there's been moments where I feel like that now. Like, I'm like, why did I walk in this room? Like, when you're...
1: I think also the mom brain is still happening, very much so.
0: Yeah, it's totally normal. So you just kind
1: of, like, write it off. and, And then over the years, it got worse and worse and worse until she was finally diagnosed officially with Alzheimer's in 1985. That Christmas, now 1986... Jan brought her slippers, long underwear, and a beautiful floral arrangement to try to cheer her up at Christmas. And she said that she noticed that her mother had what looked like, like a bit of like dried food. The nurses fed her a puree. Okay. And it looked like there was like a little puree in the corner of her mouth. And she's like, oh, man, like they really need to do a better job like keeping her clean. But uh, don't worry, mama. I'm going to get this for you. And so she went to the bathroom and she got a washcloth. And she wet it. And she went to... Wash the food off of Marguerite's face and Marguerite completely lost it. She said that her mother's eyes widened in absolute terror. She began twisting violently and then she began to cry. She seemed like she was petrified. So Jan was like, It's okay, mom, it's okay, and like managed to soothe her and like slowly calm her down. But she was very unsettled by the encounter, but she tried to put it out of her mind as unfortunately just a progression of the Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. that she didn't know where she was potentially and she was scared, but it turned out to be very real why she was scared. On January 8th, 1987, Kathy called her estranged husband, Ken, in tears. She told him that she had caught Gwen making out with another Alpine employee. Oh, fuck, she's calling him. Yeah, so she actually goes to his house. Not cool. Yeah, she's like, I live with her and I have to get away from her. And she was crying. She's like, I'm so sorry. Now I know how you felt, Ken, when I left you and you caught me cheating. I have had just a dagger to my heart. I'm so distraught. And she said something along the lines of, they're always sorry when they leave and she's going to be really sorry. Like, I'm going to get her back somehow. but. She said that in anger. And then by the end, Ken said it was, it was almost like she was determined not to lose her. Like she kind of backtracked and was like, you know what? I'm just going to fight for her. And Ken said that she went home to Gwen the next day. And that was the last he heard about the infidelity. So he assumed that they had patched up.
0: Yeah, as one would, right? Yeah.
1: Ten days after that, while Marguerite Chambers was sleeping, she was smothered in her bed. The murderer placed a terry cloth over her nose and squeezed while the other hand covered her mouth.
0: It's oh, vicious.
1: Marguerite thrashed and fought, but her attacker was much too strong. By the time she was discovered, her skin was cold and yellow-gray. At 10 p.m. that evening, four aides transferred
0: her body to a stretcher to go to the morgue. Jesse, do you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. You love Shopify. I do. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been an essential part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for
1: small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools
0: they need to succeed. I tell you what, Jesse, every day is different as a business owner, and there are new obstacles and challenges that we have to overcome and figure out solutions for, and Shopify always has our back.
1: With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest,
0: and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify.
1: And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire
0: suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder right now. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder.
1: Two of these aides were Kathy and Gwen. The house supervisor reviewed Marguerite's chart, making sure that there was nothing that warranted a call to the coroner, but there wasn't. She was a sick, older woman, and it was a nursing home. The elderly and the infirm died there all of the time. It wasn't unusual. So the house supervisor said she couldn't remember a time where they felt like something warranted an autopsy ever. So very rarely did the coroner look at these bodies.
0: Okay, so you're just telling us that information because you have foresight. It wasn't apparent that she was murdered. It was not apparent that she was murdered
1: at all. And that's why nobody looked into this at all. And, you know, just, it's an unfortunate reality that the people who work in these types of facilities are often very understaffed, underpaid, and they see a lot of death. And so after a while, it just becomes like part of the job. And so everyone was there was like, oh, it's terrible that Marguerite's gone. Okay, open bed. Who's the next person coming in? And for everyone, it was just like another day, except for Jan, who was absolutely obsessed with her mom. She loved her mother so much. And she couldn't believe that this had happened so fast. And the whole policy of the home was that If your loved one is ailing, then they call you immediately. So you can make sure to be there with them in their last hours or minutes. And nobody had called her. How did she take a downturn so quickly?
0: That they couldn't call.
1: That they couldn't even call to give her a heads up. It It just seemed very suspect. She had a lingering bad feeling about it. Okay. And, you know, a lot of people were like, well, you know, your mother was very sick. And she's like, something is not adding up to me. Yeah. And it haunted her, like she couldn't sleep. She remembers talking to her own children and crying and being like, I wish I had a mother, like you guys still have a mother. It was a very, very hard experience for Jan. The day after Marguerite passed away, both Gwen and Kathy called out of work. They spent the day drinking and having sex. One of them mounted the other one's body and began to basically do some role-playing suffocating the other woman with a tube sock. One hand on her nose, one hand on her mouth. When this sexual role play stopped, Gwen and Kathy vowed to love one another forever. Oh my God. Over the next week's multiple incident reports would be filed by Kathy seemed like all of a sudden her patients were fighting her for no reason she reported she had been bit by one hit in the face by another she had the marks to prove it other aides also noted that some of the residents seemed unusually paranoid and scared yeah they're going to kill me one resident named claire pierce screamed over and over again She wasn't the first and she would not be the last to attempt to communicate that there were two predators in their midst. The residents had a very good reason to be terrified. Gwen and Kathy were preying on them. They started doing things to test to see if somebody would actually put up a fight. So they would go to the residents that had progressed in their disease to a point of being unable to communicate so they couldn't be ratted out. And then they would pinch their nose to cut off oxygen and see how hard they fought back to select their victims. So fucked up. Yeah, it was a very sick, twisted, so-called game that had been spawned by a couple different motivations depending on who you believe later. okay, Because this does turn into a she said, she said situation. Kathy would later admit that she was losing Gwen to Heather at this point and she refused to let it happen. Though she'll later not take any credit for inventing this idea or having, like she says that she was not the instigator, that she didn't think about murdering anyone. She'll, you know, of course say that Gwen did, but she did say about it, that it was something that she knew would keep them together. It was like mutually assured yeah. destruction. Yeah. Yeah. If they did something so heinous together like this, then they could never leave one another. No, because they constantly blackmail each other, which is so unhealthy. Super unhealthy. Yeah. But in her very screwed up mind, this was a promise of forever yes. with Gwen, which is what she wanted. Yes. She didn't care how she got it. Yeah. She didn't care if it was healthy or good. Yeah. She wanted it. And this was how she got it. Now, we don't know for sure whose idea it really was or really actually who was the one doing the actual smothering. Yep. But both Kathy and Gwen were on the shifts for all of the murders that we're going to talk about. Over the course of the next three months, at least five more people lost their lives. Holy shit. They think that there may have been even more. They don't know because there is so much natural death in nursing homes yep. that it was hard for the authorities later to parse through who was murdered and who had actually naturally expired. Yeah,
0: that's so sad. They should have just
1: everyone during that yeah, time. charge them all. Yep. And also, it should be noted that Alpine Manor was not some underfunded, grubby place where people were put when they didn't have families. It was a well-regarded institution at the time. It was seemingly a nice place, which just goes to show you that it can happen anywhere to any population. And elder abuse is a very significant problem that we don't, I don't think, spend enough resources trying to solve. No. So, victim number two was a 95 year old woman named Myrtle Luce, who had been married to the love of her life for over 65 years at the time of his death. She spent her life in service to others. She adopted a troubled teenage boy into their family when she was younger. She was the one that, if family members were sick or convalescing, she would be the one who nursed them back to health. After her kids were out of the house, she spent all of her time volunteering. She was just one of those people who was a helper. Unfortunately, after her husband's death, she suffered a series of strokes that robbed her of her ability to communicate or walk. Still, her daughter Hazel visited seven days a week. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, that's what I mean. These are not unloved people. These are very, very loved and valued Individuals, Hazel was basically a legend at Alpine, and she knew all the staff because no one had ever seen a more devoted daughter, yeah, who went and spent time with her mother, even though her mother at that point was unable to communicate with her at all, so even though Myrtle was ninety five years old, the doctor told Hazel that her mother had an extraordinarily healthy heart, okay, and that she could likely even live another five years potentially making it to a hundred and That was what Hazel was looking forward to. She didn't care that her mother had this condition. She just very much valued the time she did have with her. And it was pretty devastating when Myrtle did not make it to 100 because two months later on February 10th, her life was snuffed out by a couple of real monsters. Next, the diabolical duo targeted Maisie Mae Mason, a 78-year-old Alzheimer's patient. May had been an incredibly gifted interior decorator who just could not stay still. She was just an unbelievably active woman. Brimming with life, May had grown up relatively poor and she had not even finished high school, but she taught herself about the arts and instilled a love of opera, theater, and fine arts museums in her children and grandchildren. May's granddaughter, Stephanie, appeared on the License to Kill show and spoke glowingly about her grandmother who practically raised her while her parents were working. May's daughter, Linda, had vowed to keep her mother at home with their family, but soon May's Alzheimer's had grown so bad that May had become a danger to herself and others. Stephanie recounted a time that she had come home to an f- oven fire and it turned out that May had put a dish rag in the oven and turned it on yeah. in order to dry the rag. So at that point, the family decided and May even in a, in a point of clarity, she said, I don't think I should be living here anymore. So it was mutually decided and they did a lot of research before they landed on Alpine Manor. And of course, they would come to regret that decision dearly. May was discovered dead in her bed at 4 a.m. on February 16th. Kathy had been her primary aide, and Gwen Graham had been assisting her that evening. That's like six days later. Again, both women took the next day off and they went through their ritual of role playing, role playing, and sex and drinking and seemingly celebrating their kill. Wow. Another aide named Sean noted that when a resident died, usually the entire staff would come by to pay their respects. And that it would become very conspicuous that two people who never did that were Gwen and Kathy. The sapphic serial killers flew under the radar in late February and early March as a terrible flu raged through Alpine Manor, causing more fatalities than usual. They knew the nursing home was prepared for that. It's the sort of thing that you can't entirely prevent. And flus obviously are very dangerous to the elderly and infirm. So there were a lot of deaths during that time that they were active, which made it again, very difficult to ascertain which people were murdered because they also were not like just murdering healthy people somebody could have the flu and they would kill them. Yep. And they were working pretty much all the time together. Alpine Manor was extremely understaffed. So it was very easy for them to be able to pick up shifts, to volunteer, to do doubles, to get overtime. And even the house supervisor had had it with them. And she went to the higher ups and she said, you cannot have these two together. She did not think that they were murdering, of course. She thought that they were immature. They played pranks. They were not always appropriate. A slew of other things. Yeah. Yeah. They were not always appropriate with the residents. They were making out. They were fooling around. It was just very unprofessional. But the higher ups were like, look, if they want to work, we need them to work. We need bodies. Yeah. We don't care if they're being unprofessional as long as they're getting the job done and they're taking care of these patients. Yeah. Their next alleged victim was a 98-year-old woman named Ruth Van Dyke. Ruth was a strong woman who had been raised on a farm and raised two children. Her son told a story about them basically like Oregon Trail fjording like a river and what a badass she was, like saving the like family dog or something. Like it was this very like she was like rugged, tough, salt of the earth. And though she was 98 years old, longevity ran in her family. Her sisters had lived to be 97, 98, and 99. Whoa. On February 25th. Ugh, rude. I know. Your birthday. And pretty close to the last kill, which was February 16th, Ruth's children did visit her because she was afflicted with the flu. Okay. So they were a little worried about her. Yeah. They were a little concerned about her condition. So they were spending time with her, but there was a snowstorm and she seemed... Kind of like she was recovering. So they were like, we're going to call tonight around like 10, 10, and we're going to go home and then we'll come back the next day and see if she's better. But she never got better because they received a call at 2.40 in the morning that Ruth had passed away. The death certificate would indicate that she died of cardiac arrest. Ugh. In the midst of this killing spree, Gwen and Kathy were, like I said, they were Testing everyone. They were abusing the other residents trying to find their next victim. It was like they were sharks. You know how sharks like bump up against their prey just to see if they're going to fight back before they actually attack? Yep. That's essentially what these two were doing.
0: I guess that they could figure out how many deaths were theirs by how many days they took off.
1: Yeah. They could like trace it to who died the day before they took that day off. So some of the residents though were really fighting back, like good on them. I mean, the whole thing about Lowell Caulfield's book is that he is making a case for Kathy being essentially the mastermind and the aggressor. Okay, And he pointed out that Gwen didn't have any incident reports against her or not against her, but like she had not filed any incidents of a Patient attacking her. Yep. Where Kathy had a slew of them. Yep. So one woman who fought back was 74-year-old Belle Burkhard. Belle was three-fourths indigenous Chippewa and had grown up in Michigan's rugged upper peninsula. She had worked as a cook, raised a family, and was widowed twice by the age of 56. Oh God. It's a tough life. Throughout it all, Belle was a survivor. She had only gone into Alpine Manor when she was diagnosed with organic brain disease and a convulsive disorder.
0: What's an organic brain disease? From
1: what I read, it seems similar to dementia or okay. Alzheimer's, but it's caused by something else. In Bell's case, they said that you know she had a history of drinking hard, and that that may have contributed to her organic brain disease. Okay. By the time Gwen and Kathy got their hands on her, Belle was unable to walk or communicate verbally or by writing. She still, though, had a twinkle in her eye and a survivor's disposition. On February 15th, so we're going back a little bit in time, Belle was discovered by another aide with reddish bruises around her nose, right cheek, and temple. And it seemed that Belle had managed to fight her assailants off Unfortunately, they would return to finish the job. Bell was discovered, expired, the euphemism Alpine Manor used for death, at 425 in the morning, only 11 days later. So that's February 26th. That means they stacked him up. They came to work the next day and did it again. Also, all of these deaths are happening at the night shift. I know. All of them.
0: And like... Yeah, it's like such a pattern and now it's increasing and they're doing more because they're, they're feeling changed and they're doing people who are actual real fighters and survivors to try to see what their boundaries are. Like
1: It's sick. And then after Belle, Kathy and Gwen took the next day off together. Aides would later say that it was no wonder no one noticed the murders. Number one, we're talking about a nursing home. Like I've said a million times, there's very sick and elderly people. So it's not as though this is something out of the ordinary. No. And number two, everybody was so busy sleeping around and attending to their own personal dramas that no one had the time or motivation to note the strange events happening at the home. Lol Caulfield wrote the following about the sexual hijinks that was going on between the employees. And this was what I told you guys I teased that I'm gonna sum up some of this action because it blew my mind. He wrote, Few aides, however, were worried about the patient death count. More newsworthy were the sexual and emotional liaisons of people associated with Gwen Graham and Kathy Wood. The overview presented quite an entanglement. Dawn had slept with Kathy, first alone, then in a threesome with LaDonna. Dawn did a one-nighter with Gwen, then one of Gwen's friends. Now she was eyeing Heather. LaDonna Stearns had been strung along by Kathy, had left her husband, and now lived with Angie Brozak. Angie, after Kathy had tampered with her marriage, had been turned out by Kathy and Gwen and now left her husband as well. She was sleeping with LaDonna. Heather, who had dated Paul Lopez, was now immersed in a secret affair with Gwen. Paul had been paired with Tony Kubiak. He left Alpine Manor with Jesse, LaDonna's brother, despite Kathy's attempt to break them up.
0: Oh my God.
1: On the fringe was Lisa Lynch, one of Heather's best friends at Alpine. Lisa maintained she was not gay and blamed Kathy for the destruction of her marriage. If anyone was keeping score, though, Gwen Graham deserved the grand prize. Since coming to Alpine, she had betted Dawn, Angie, Kathy, Heather, and the young aide Jim Shooter and made several less noteworthy conquests along the way.
0: Wow. Wowza! That belongs in, like, the National Enquirer.
1: (laughs) I cannot fathom these people caring for my grandparents. No. Is just wild. Like I said, it, it feels more like we're talking about a bunch of early 20 something people working at a dive bar on Bravo on a reality <laughs> show. Yes, it's insane. Dawn later reported that their relationship, all of this entanglement was so messed up and it was also coming out violently. She said that she got really wasted once and got into a fist fight with LaDonna. And knocked out LaDonna's front teeth, and the next day they couldn't remember why they were fighting even.
0: Oh, my God. Just fucked up. Yeah.
1: So Dawn did, however, remember a night in 1987 when Gwen told her that she had smothered a patient to death while Kathy stood lookout. Dawn didn't take it seriously, though, at the time because she thought it was just another one of Gwen and Kathy's sick jokes to say such a thing.
0: Yeah, I know. But, like, who would ever assume that that was true? I know. And also, who would ever, like, I just couldn't imagine someone saying that and having it be real or having it be fake and thinking that saying something fake like that is a funny idea.
1: Yeah, their whole group had a very... Dark sense of humor doing what they had to do. And so they just kind of wrote it off as another just sick joke. Yeah. In April, the body count continued both between the sheets and by Gwen and Kathy's murderous hands. At age 97, Edith Cook was considered the Grand Dam of Alpine Manor. Despite the difficulties of her life, Edith had been an upbeat and delightful resident from her entry only five years earlier. She was widely considered the most popular resident. Throughout the years, Edith had lost her father very early when she was still a young child. She lost an adopted child at only 14 months old. And she had been widowed in her early 50s. So when her brother moved to Florida, she elected to put herself into Alpine Manor, stating, This home is grand, the food is wonderful, and everything is absolutely lovely. She actually reminds me a lot of my grandmother. Really? Yeah. So guys, my grandmother, Ellie, is turning 100 years old tomorrow, which by the time this comes out will be two days ago on Monday. And she is just delightful. She is the ambassador at her retirement community. So every time somebody comes in new, a new resident, she sits and has lunch or dinner with them for their first meal to make them comfortable. So Ellie. Yeah. And so I was like, really vibing with Edith Cook here. It just reminded me so much of Ellie. Unfortunately, though, she had had a bout of breast cancer two years earlier and it had devastated her health. So she had taken a downturn by April 1987. She was unable to feed herself at that point. So on April 5th, another nurse overheard Edith yelling, Please, oh, please, God help me. So she said, when she peeked her head in the door she saw Kathy Wood with Edith and Kathy assured the nurse that Edith was just having a hard time swallowing she was feeding her and she was getting the wrong idea about how she was feeding her she was feeling attacked even though she was just helping her
0: yeah I don't know about that with all your fucking complaints
1: yeah so at that point though the nurse was like okay she seems fine to me she was looking at her so she was like keep on keeping on I'm gonna leave now and by 2.30 in the morning that morning, Edith Cook was dead.
0: What, did she like choke on her food or something?
1: I don't know. I don't know what that one was actually. Ugh. As the death count began to fall with the better spring weather, bringing better health to the residents, Kathy wrote a poem for Gwen that I have here for your listening
0: pleasure. Tickle my ears, Jesse.
1: I can love you, Gwen. I think you're great. For this afternoon, I cannot wait. Oh my God. That's when we'll wake up, and that's when I'll kiss you, and that's when I'll hold you. Oh, Gwen, I miss you. Bunny hop over here, and let me lick you on the ear. I want to get married, right now, right away. Don't make me wait till the day. When you're mine, oh, please say you'll be mine forever and five days.
0: So she didn't incorporate bunny foo-foo? I think that was just the bunny
1: hopping. The the foo-foo was implied. Gwen responded in kind. There's uh, some terrible notes from Gwen as well. And the two of them always signed off these little love notes and love poems with forever and X amount of days. Later, Kathy would claim that the number referred to their death tally. So forever ah. represented one. Oh. And the number of days represented the additional victims. <sighs> So six total victims, hence the name of Lowell Caulfield's book, Forever and Five Days. That's sick. I mean, we have used sick, twisted, diabolical, and we'll use it a lot more because this is a supremely effed up case. However, the couple's duration was going to be certainly less than forever, not counting any of those days. Shockingly, Andy, murdering defenseless old ladies together is not the foundation of a long and lasting relationship. What? You don't think they're going to write a self-help book? Shocker. (laughs) Yes. Throughout the spring and early summer, Gwen was still carrying on her affair with Heather. And the two began to really seriously fall in love. At that point, Gwen was telling Heather how abusive Kathy was toward her. So she's complaining a lot about Kathy at this point, And Heather just did not know why Gwen wouldn't leave her. Yeah. She's like, you don't love her anymore. She's so terrible to you. By this point also, the relationship was visibly ugly to everyone who hung out with them at all times. Yeah. Okay. So Gwen told Heather and I think another friend that during sex, Kathy had violated her with a loaded gun. Ugh. Terrifying.
0: This is not the first time we heard that. Right. No,
1: that's a, it's a very sick power play a yeah. lot of individuals have done, yeah. which is revolting. And also they went to a company softball game and apparently Kathy and Gwen got into a physical altercation. Gwen slapped Kathy in the face. Kathy was pulling Gwen's hair. It was bad. It's really, really, really bad. They're in a terrible relationship. And Gwen basically one night while she was drinking told Heather that the reason she couldn't leave Kathy was because Kathy was blackmailing her to stay. Yep. And she had always kind of hinted that she had done something wrong and that Kathy knew about it and Kathy was holding it over her head. And so Heather pushed her one night to reveal what she had done. And Gwen said, I've killed some residents. I've killed six people. But the same thing, Heather was like, you're like blackout drunk. You're messed up. You're taking on responsibility for something that's not yours. She thought that she was lying or Kathy put this into her head or, you know, you screw up something at work and then maybe you feel responsible. She did not think that Gwen was actively murdering people. Smothering. Yeah.
0: 80 year old women.
1: Mm hmm. But yeah, like, and it was just like, Dawn. like, it's like, oh, you could, you're just saying weird shit. Like, I'm not going to actually believe that this is real. So Gwen had been part of a lawsuit, like she was suing somebody else. I think it was some sort of joint lawsuit that was set to resolve in August back in Tyler, Texas. So she and Heather decided that they were both going to quit Alpine Manor together and move to Tyler. Okay. So they just wanted to leave Kathy completely behind. And I think that what she was hoping was that if Kathy didn't have to see them every day, if they weren't in the same town as her, that maybe Kathy would accept the breakup and not retaliate. Because also it screws Kathy over if she goes to the police. Yep. So I think that that was what Gwen was thinking. Like, if we get out of town and we're just out of everybody's hair, then maybe Kathy won't do anything to harm me or Heather. So Gwen did break the news to Kathy and she moved out even before they moved. She ended up moving into a trailer with one of their friends and Heather. Okay. So she put in her notice and she was ready to leave. However, Kathy was not ready to let her go. So... From Heather's side, she said that there was times that Gwen would say, I have to go over to see Kathy. I'm trying just to keep her happy until we leave. It's mostly platonic at this point, but she said that she would come home like used, abused, scratched desperately. And she would know... Kathy had gotten her in the sack and had hurt her. Yeah. But at that point, she was really in love with Gwen. And she was like, I just have to get Gwen out of the situation. And then we're going to be fine once we get to Texas. Meanwhile, Kathy spoke to Ken right before Gwen and Heather moved and claimed that Gwen had tried to get back together with her. But she said to Ken that she no longer wanted to be with Gwen. She told Ken that she was actually a little afraid of Gwen. She told him very darkly and kind of mysteriously that the two had done some terrible things together. So she did this thing for like a couple days of being like, oh, I've done bad things and you know Gwen's really evil, but I can't tell you what it is. Until finally he was like, Kathy, you're the mother of my kid. I'm not gonna tell anyone. I promise you, I won't tell anyone. Just tell me what the hell happened here.
0: Yeah, because at a certain point, it's like, come on.
1: Yeah, so after he promised... Not to tell, she went over to his house where she admitted that they had murdered six residents at Alpine Manor. According to Ken's account for Lowell Caulfield, she told him that she'd also told her sister the truth because he's like, does anyone else know this? Yeah. She's like, well, obviously Gwen knows. And I told my sister as well. But the version that I told my sister was that Gwen was killing all of them. And I just had knowledge that she was doing it. But she told Ken that that wasn't the case, that she was an active participant. Yeah. And she really shocked him with details. She talked about the stalking of their victims, how they were testing people, how they picked out people who wouldn't be able to communicate what had happened if they did survive. One of the most horrifying details, which if you guys have heard this case before, you'll remember because it it really does stand out in the mind was that she told Ken that their first victim had been Marguerite and that there was a deceased list essentially in the nursing home. It was posted residents who had passed away and that their goal from the outset was to kill these elderly people in an order and choose them based on their first initial so that the Sheet would spell out murder.
0: Oh, my God. So there was
1: Marguerite and then they were going to go for, I think, a woman. There was like a woman named Ursula. And then there was another woman that they suspect later that they may have killed called Wanda Urbanski. But their whole goal was to select victims so they, they could spell out murder in a sick, twisted game. But she told Ken, unfortunately, you know, some of these people just wouldn't die. You know, they fought back. So we didn't get to spell out murder. Such a bummer. And he was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And at that point, he was like, I cannot be hearing this. This can't be right. You're lying. You're screwing with me because she was such a liar and such a manipulator. Exactly. That he's like, you are just making this up. And even if you think you're telling the truth, you're not. This is the mother of his child. They were married for over seven years. So he said to her, according to the book, look, Kathy, this is awful, but you've been through an awful time lately. You're confused. You haven't killed anybody. You just felt sorry for these people. You're just really messed up right now. You need help. All of this because you don't know what kind of life you want to live. You don't know what's going on in your life. Oh no, she said, drawing out the word. She looked at him almost incredulously. She was patronizing, even flippant. No, Ken, that's not right, she said. We did it because it was fun. Crazily enough, Ken did not go to the authorities for 18 months.
0: What, until after shit came out?
1: No, he's the reason why shit came out eventually. But I think that he was in denial. In shock. And it sounded like he was still entertaining taking Kathy back now that Gwen was out of her life. It looks like they took a trip to Vegas together at one point, and he realized on that trip that she was telling the truth and that she really was a killer and a bad, really bad person. And it was only then that he finally took action. In the meantime, in that intervening 18 months, Gwen had moved to Texas with Heather. She enrolled in school and she was working in a maternity ward.
0: Oh, so she can kill babies next.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No babies were killed, thankfully, but it's a terrifying terrifying prospect. Yes. Terrifying. Absolutely.
0: The first person that like handles your baby after you have it.
1: Oh, can you be one of those mothers that realize this later on? Oh. And meanwhile, back at Alpine Manor, where Kathy is still working, there were still residents who feared for their life with good reason. Lucille Vanderveen was admitted to Alpine Manor on July 31st, 1987. And that fall, she told her hairdresser of over a decade that one of the aides at Alpine Manor was trying to kill her. 81-year-old Lucille said that they put a pillow over her face and pressed down hard, but that she had fought. She said, I swung and I kicked and I scratched and they couldn't do it. Later, when the allegations came to light, the hairdresser, Maureen, went to the authorities and recounted the conversation. But unfortunately, by then, Lucille had died of allegedly natural causes. So she was unable to bear witness. Lowell Caulfield noted that this is an important piece of information as Lucille did not enter Alpine Manor until five full weeks after Gwen left for Texas, which he believes proved that Kathy was still active after Gwen left. It wouldn't be until October of 1988 that Ken grew the balls to report Kathy's confession to the police. He told detective Tom Freeman, all that Kathy had said including the detail about trying to spell out murder with the victim's first initials, at first, the police and the prosecutor did not even believe the story. They thought it was completely outlandish and that potentially this guy was making it up to get back at his wife for leaving him for another woman it's so crazy to think about to comprehend because also we're used to dealing with and i mean law enforcement is probably used to dealing with things that have motivations yeah there's no motivation for two trained medical personnel to start killing the elderly
0: there is a motivation for Kathy they didn't
1: really know this yet of course, they didn't understand of the the personal yeah. dynamics so they're thinking like did they get these women to write them into their will? Is there some monetary benefit happening? And there was none. Detective Freeman did have a gut sense that this was real. So he had to fight the higher ups and basically the prosecutor to make sure that this was investigated and eventually prosecuted because along the way, a lot of people were like, this is just a made up story. Wow. So in order to prove his point, He brings in Kathy for an interview and he is shocked when she doesn't say, oh my gosh, I told that to my ex-husband to freak him out. It's not true. Instead, she says, oh yeah, it's all true. Definitely 100% all true. The only thing is he was being a jerk and saying I was involved somehow. I wasn't. It was all my ex-girlfriend. It was her idea. She was the one who smothered all of those people and I tried to fight her off and I couldn't convince her not to do it. And
0: she just is very sick in the head. And And you can find her in Tyler, Texas with her new girlfriend. Thanks. Bye.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly what Kathy does. Oh, do you need her address? I'll tell you where you can hunt her down and arrest her. But yeah, she was the one who came up with this idea. And, you know, what? she told me she told me that sometimes just pressure builds up inside of her and she just has to kill somebody and it then relieves her tension. She said, well, why did I stick around? Why didn't I turn her in? Well, I was desperately in love with her. She is the dominant force in our relationship. I would have done anything she said, So I stood by and I know I shouldn't have, but I did. And also I was terrified of her. She's violent, she's scary, she's a murderer. I was afraid that she would hurt me. So I was just put in this terrible position and that's why I didn't do anything about what happened. Now, when they asked her when Marguerite Chambers was murdered, she said January 8th, 1987. Now there are two interesting details about Kathy's initial account to the police. Number one, there was a serial killer named Donald Harvey in Toledo, Ohio, who had been caught in his work as a hospital orderly killing people at the hospital. He had alleged that he had killed 87 people.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yes. The authorities believed it was probably realistically more like 40 to 57. That's still a shit ton of people who shouldn't have died. Yes. In any case, obviously, this became big news, was widely publicized when he was apprehended in his trial. And this was all going on right before the time that Kathy came clean to the police. And the one thing he had said in the media was that he killed to relieve his tension. Okay. Which is exactly what Kathy said about Gwen, trying to make it look like Gwen had a motivation and doing a one-to-one comparison there. Secondly, Lowell Caulfield noted that January 8th was not the day that Marguerite died. It was the day she caught Gwen cheating on her.
0: Oh, so she like snapped or something that She snapped. The
1: genesis of this whole disgusting homicidal plan had come to fruition the day she found Gwen cheating on her. And so, when they asked her, so when did this all start? They meant the murders. And she said January 8th. She kind of gave it away there. She gave it away. So, his theory, of course, is that Kathy cooked up the scheme on that day, masterminded the entire plan to potentially do this with Gwen. And she knew that it was the same thing, like I said, mutually assured destruction. She has to stay with her. They did it together. They have this deep, dark secret together. Or he says, potentially. Gwen didn't do any of the smothering. Maybe she was in the role that Kathy's pretending she was in. Yep. So she hatched the plan and she acted it out. And Gwen was like, oh, shit, what are you doing? Yeah, I got to go. Yeah, I got to go. Or even potentially, which I don't find very likely, but there's even the potential that she didn't even know Kathy was going to do this. And Kathy could blame it on her because they were always on the same shifts. Yeah. So she could set her up. Yeah. Now, the reason why I don't think that one is likely is because I do not know why Gwen would tell multiple people when she was drunk that she killed people. Yeah. If she didn't know at all that this was going on even a little bit, then she certainly wouldn't say that. Uh -uh. Now, would she say that if she was doing lookout and Kathy was killing them? Yes. I think she would still consider that I killed those people. But I still think you'd say we.
0: Yeah, I do too.
1: I don't know. So this is where it's like tricky for me that she had said this to Heather Dawn and there was another friend or two that she had at one point drunkenly said something like, I'm a bad person. I've killed people or something too. So yeah, Lowell Caulfields feels feels like that they basically 100% believed Kathy right away and she manipulated the detectives involved. She manipulated the prosecutor involved. To have them completely 100% by her side of the story without question. Yeah. He noted that it was very odd that nobody had tape recordings of her interviews. There's no tape of this, which was obviously routine. And that even a lieutenant from the state police came in and got involved for her second polygraph, but was really surprised when her polygraph hadn't been videotaped.
0: Weird.
1: Which was also against protocol. So there's just some facts missing about these initial interviews where they decided to believe Kathy. Yeah. She had allegedly passed this first polygraph. They were actually trying to ascertain whether or not these murders even happened. Okay. When they first did it. They weren't trying to even figure out whether she was guilty or Gwen was guilty. They were trying to do a a lie detector test to see if people had actually died or whether she was just doing this for attention. And... They said that her first polygraph, she passed with flying colors about everything. It was real, yeah. And so they're like, "Oh shit!" Then maybe this actually did happen. And then they needed to do another one to really dial down on who had what role in these murders. Now, and the follow-up state police lieutenant said that he was very surprised that they were going to go with Kathy's story because he administered the polygraph. And he said that she was completely deceitful. They had wired the polygraph machine to also pick up when people move in a certain way or fidget or slam their foot down or something. Or there's other keys that you can pick up. And it was showing that she was deceitful. And he said... There was absolutely no question in my mind from experience that she was playing a game. She was playing a very subtle, intelligent game, a cognitive game. And he closed by saying he believed her to be a pathological liar. Yeah. Gwen was arrested in Texas, and she claimed that the murders didn't happen at all. She said, it's an old folks home. People died. This is my ex's sick revenge joke on me nobody was killed. I certainly didn't participate in any killings. I wasn't even a lookout. I didn't do anything. I had no knowledge of this. Which again, I find very unlikely. Yeah. So she took a polygraph and- it She's al-
0: also taking the day off the next day. Exactly. And rolling around in the hay with her fucking sick.
1: I think they were both in yeah. it up to their chins. And I don't think it matters at the end of the day which one actually was doing the smothering. It
0: doesn't. I bet they were trading off. Yeah. I bet
1: they were both getting their hands dirty with yeah. that. They're both equally responsible. And it doesn't matter whether Kathy was the mastermind. Gwen went along with it. Yep. Yeah. Gwen also took a polygraph and it came up deceptive. But this is very strange. They noted that- She always came up deceptive, like she'd be saying her name or her birthday, things they knew were true, and it was registering as deceptive.
0: Yeah, because she's probably pissing her pants.
1: Yeah. So they, because of that reason, though, because there was no control, they had to say that the polygraph was inconclusive. The director of the state police's behavioral science division, a guy named Dr. Gary Kaufman, examined Gwen and Kathy to see if they matched up to any psychological criminal profiles He determined that usually in criminal pairings, when you have, you know, a killer couple or the like, there is one dominant personality, generally a manipulative, narcissistic personality, sometimes psychopathic, while their partner is more passive and more likely to have borderline personality disorder. Later on, Gwen is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So he knows that the state is going with... Essentially, Gwen's the ringleader. Yeah. This was all Gwen. Gwen did all the killings. Kathy was just the accessory. And he's like, I really think you guys have it backwards. Yeah. Based on what I'm reading, based on what I'm seeing, I have to caution you. Like, sure, you can go ahead with this story, but I would be shocked if Kathy wasn't the dominant person in this pairing. And you should not believe what she says when she puts it all on Gwen. Yeah. I believe very strongly she was the one who was the one powering this relationship. But by then, the state had pretty much built their entire case around Kathy's testimony. So both Gwen and Kathy had been arrested in December of 1988 and charged with five murders, those of Marguerite, Myrtle, May, Belle, and Edith. And they were also suspected of the murders of Ruth, which we talked about, a woman, like I said, named Wanda Urbanski and Lucille Vanderveen. Yeah. Gwen maintained that she knew nothing of the slayings, so they were not getting anywhere with her. Meanwhile, three out of five of the victims had been cremated, so that was no help. Yeah. They exhumed Marguerite, which, by the way, was just so extremely traumatic for the family. Yes. They had a loved one die. Then they found out that that person actually had terrifying last moments and was killed by somebody that they trusted to care lovingly for their mother grandmother and then poor margarita is not able to rest she's not laid to rest they have to literally dig up her grave and examine her so this was just a very very emotionally difficult time for all of the families of these victims to find out this shocking truth and they all felt a certain amount of responsibility because they had put their parents there or they had Done the research and believed it was a good place, and they had gone there and they had met the staff. Like they were shocked at this unbelievable deception and betrayal. Unfortunately, even with Marguerite being able to be autopsied at this point, it is very, very hard apparently to determine whether somebody's been smothered. Okay. And it's much harder when somebody's been deceased for nearly two years. Yep. And They were older and unwell to begin with. Yeah. So the medical examiner said, look, I can't prove that they were smothered, but I can't rule it out based on Kathy's testimony and what she was admitting to. I think I'm going to go ahead and rule these as homicide. So he just was like, screw it. All five of these homicides. Let's go to trial. Now, this case was blowing up in the media because it's the late 80s. And the crazed killer lesbians, you know, gay panic homophobia really went over well. Yeah. The 80s. In the 80s, there was already the gay panic going on with the AIDS epidemic. And this was just a pile on and a disaster for gay rights activists, obviously, But it also put an incredible amount of pressure on the state to prosecute because they could not have this out in the news that there were these wild, promiscuous, homicidal lesbians and killing vulnerable elderly people and that they're not going to do anything about it. They're not going to prosecute anyone. No one's going to go to jail. So even though they have kind of a weak case, they've got the public screaming for blood. They have an inconclusive autopsy. There's no physical evidence. There's no eyewitnesses other than Kathy. And the only thing they had was Kathy's testimony. That's it. So they needed Kathy to testify against Gwen or they had absolutely no case and people were pissed. So they cut a deal with Kathy that in exchange for her testimony, she would be able to plead down to one count of second degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit second degree murder. We'll get into her sentence later. So Gwen was hit with one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and five counts of first-degree murder. Prior to Gwen's trial, two female inmates came forward saying that Kathy had admitted culpability for the murders while she was on the inside. One person reported that she said that she had actually made the whole thing up. Narcissist. Mm -hmm. So according to Forever in Five Days... This woman said, we were in the same cell for a month and a half. We were friends. We used to talk all of the time. She always used to tell me, I don't know nothing. I don't know nothing. Then when it started getting close that I was leaving, I said, Kathy, I just really wanna know one thing. Did you guys really do that? And she said, no, I made it up. And I said, damn, Kathy, you're gonna spend a lot of time in prison. You're gonna spend maybe the rest of your life in prison and nobody did anything? Nobody was killed? Why did you do that? And she said, because I loved her. I loved her and I wanted to be with her. And she figured that that was the only way. She knew they would end up in the same prison and said that Gwen would have no one to turn to.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And when they got into prison together, all of her problems would be solved. She said the only thing she would miss was her truck, not her daughter, her truck. So this woman said that she believed her. She said, Kathy's crazy. She's mentally disturbed. She wants what she wants when she wants it. And how she gets it, she doesn't care. Yep. Meanwhile, a 19-year-old Grand Rapids woman doing six months for soliciting her to somewhat different version. Margaret Mann was sitting in the day room in cell block number six, listening to Kathy talk about the murder charges she faced. Yeah, I did it, she said. Gwen was the lookout. Gwen watched my back. So naturally, the prosecution is not going to be taking those witnesses. No. Because it goes against Kathy's story. So Gwen's trial began in the fall of 1989. And the star witness against her was, of course, Kathy. Which, by the way, Kathy was also using some of the things she had done to Gwen and pretending it had happened to her. She testified that Gwen was the one who violated her with a loaded gun
0: whoa so either that's like that either she projecting
1: yep she projected that right up there and she put on a good show i mean she was crying she seemed believable she was a very good witness for the prosecution but the witness that actually broke gwen's heart was heather her lover so they had stayed in touch after the arrest and Gwen was head over heels in love with Heather was like sending her in the book. There's like pictures of the drawings and poems that she was sending Heather promising to love her forever and asking her if she beat the charges, if they could be together again. So she was still really into this relationship. And then Heather went on the stand and said, she told me she murdered people. I mean, what else was she supposed
0: to do? Yeah, no, I would do the same thing.
1: Yeah. And so apparently Gwen fell apart, like, lost her mind after the last day of Heather's testimony when she was leaving the stand and they had to remove her from the courtroom because she was like screaming. And later on, she was asked by the author, what was it about that moment? Why did you break down? Was it because you knew that you were going to go to jail like when somebody who loved you was saying that? And she said, no, it was that I knew for sure that that was the last time I was ever going to see Heather in my life. And that was like the thing. The catalyst, yeah. The catalyst. Not that she was worried about her own life. Not that she was thinking about the lives she stole. Yeah. But that she was thinking about her love life. Yeah. Which is really a demonstration of this entire case. These selfish, involved, sex-crazed people that are so into their own love life that they don't give a shit about anything else or anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And two other friends of Gwen's testified to similar confessions about her saying that she was responsible for she had murdered people. Despite that, Gwen's defense attorney argued that there was no physical evidence, no evidence that a single murder had actually taken place given that the autopsies were basically inconclusive and that Kathy had in her testimony said that Gwen took trophies of her kills, but no such souvenirs were ever found despite extensive searches.
0: Yeah, I feel like you'd find them because killers love keeping that stuff.
1: Yeah, it was noted though that- Kathy had some things she had taken. Yeah. yeah. Also, the defense attorney brought up the fact that Kathy was nearly six feet tall and outweighed 5'3 Gwen by more than 100 pounds. Yeah. So she really couldn't stop her. You physically could not stop her from doing these things. Yeah. He closed with evidence that Kathy was a pathological liar. And he said, and I think this is a, a compelling argument at the end in his closing statement, if you're going to convict... Gwen, you have to believe Kathy because that's the whole game. Yeah. And I think we've been able to prove that she's a liar. So if you were up in an airplane about to skydive and Kathy would packed your parachute and told you, here you go. I packed it. Great. Would you jump? Would you believe her? Would you believe that that so parachute good. was in there? And if you say no, then you can't convict Gwen no. because that means you don't
0: believe her. Yep.
1: But yet, after six hours of deliberation, they did. They managed. They must have believed her. Gwendolyn Graham was convicted on all six charges and sentenced to life behind bars without the possibility of parole. It's an l L-word style. And he's groaning right now. Visibly he's groaning. face palmed. You looked exactly like the emoji I just know. then. I know, I <laughs> know. Now, I think that the case against Gwen was pretty shaky. But we are also in the 1980s in the Midwest. Yeah. We've got some very vulnerable victims, very likable victims, and we have a crazed evil lesbian who Thrill killed. Yeah. Like, this was one case where I think the emotions were so high And also the family members of these people are phenomenal. They get up there and they testify about the lives that these women stole and your heart goes out to them. Yeah. So it's not surprising. It's not. At all. A few weeks after that, Kathy was sentenced herself to 20 to 40 years in prison. She would be eligible for parole as early as 2005. Now, she talked to detective and the prosecutor and she's like okay so when do I get immunity and they were like excuse moi and she's like well for turning in Gwen I get to get out right I get to get out of prison they're like oh hell no and you can imagine the public pressure on them to make sure she was punished as well yeah so I feel like for cutting a deal 20 to 40 years is probably still pretty good And
0: yeah, she should be LWAPed.
1: She should be LWAP. I mean, 20 to 40 years is a great deal for her.
0: Yeah. So doesn't she want to be with Gwen? She does. Wasn't that her goal? So which
1: by the way, they kept them in separate prisons. Of of course. course. They're not gonna put these two murderers together with a known relationship. So the whole fantasy, if that was her intention, completely blew up in her face. So the loved ones of the senior citizens who were murdered, of course, were unhappy about this. They wanted both of the women responsible for their loved one's deaths to rot in jail forever. Yeah. So they fought very hard to like every parole hearing to make sure she stayed in prison. And and now when Gwen was convicted, she still maintained that she had nothing to do with this. And this was all Kathy. She was really, really, really pissed about this whole thing. She said, I'm mad as hell. I'm so angry that I can't believe it. I can't believe these people would come back and convict me of these crimes. I am not guilty of killing anybody. This is just a joke that got carried too far. I'm not going to give up though. I think that eventually I will be found not guilty and the day will come that I will walk out of prison. Not bloody likely, Gwen. Not bloody likely at all. In 2018, however, it was announced that Kathy would be released on parole for good behavior. Gwen made another statement. At that point, she said, I'm telling you, she's an evil person. She's an evil person. And whatever they need to do to keep her in there, they need to do it. After all these years, I still don't believe that anyone was murdered. I don't. It was all a revenge game. If I die in here and she's walking around, she wins. Yeah. Yeah. That was the point. The loved ones of the victims appealed Kathy's parole, and it was a physically, emotionally, financially grueling process. Yeah, I'd imagine. You can watch the License to Kill show and just see how this devastated the families. They discuss it on the show. Marguerite's daughter, Jan, and May's granddaughter, Stephanie, testified. It's really heartbreaking because... Both of these women are in tears still recounting what happened in this case and their loved ones. And Stephanie said that she has held a tremendous amount of guilt in her heart for 30 years because she felt like if she hadn't told her mom that May almost set the house on fire, her mother wouldn't have put her in a kind manner. Yeah. And it's I think that only through going through this process, she finally started to forgive herself. Yeah. Because there, she was a kid,
0: too. But the other There's, option is you light the house on fire and everyone dies.
1: Exactly. <laughs> there was nothing. Of course, she had to tell her mother yes. what happened. Yeah. And her father's on it. So May's a son-in-law. Okay. And he's very well-spoken as well. And he said that... It kills him that his daughter has had such a hard time with this and felt so badly for so long. But he's like, I know that May would be so proud of her. Yeah. Just so proud of her for fighting to keep her killer behind bars and for everything she's done to keep her memory alive. Yep. And of course, I agree wholeheartedly. Unfortunately, despite their best efforts, Kathy was paroled in 2019 and now walks among us in South Carolina. Gwen remains in prison where she will be until she dies, short a governor's pardon which I don't think is coming for her. Caulfield posits that Kathy Wood was and likely still is a dangerous psychopath who is willing to go to prison herself if it meant exacting revenge on Gwen. He believes that Kathy manipulated the prosecutor and the jury to believe her story. Kathy demonstrates the behavioral traits of a narcissistic psychopath while Gwen has since been diagnosed with BPD. From a psychology standpoint, as well as from witness testimony of people who knew both of them and watched their interactions, it seemed very obvious that Kathy was the dominant partner. Yes. Since she was incarcerated, more cellmates and other people, other inmates, have come forward alleging that Kathy has indicated that she either made up the story or killed the women herself. Gwen confessing, though, uh, they're both involved. Is it fair that Gwen will die in prison while Kathy is out free? No. But I don't think that the answer is that she should also be out. (laughs) No. Yeah. It's like, they should both be in. Yeah, they should both be in. To end on a positive note, though, since these murders, laws have been passed that better protect those in care facilities and nursing homes. There are now mandatory patient staff ratios as well as other policies put in place to protect our elderly population. From hopefully something like this happening again. But in the License to Kill show, they ended it by saying the most important thing that you can do, though, is be very vigilant if your loved one lives in a nursing home. Visit often. Yep. Get to know the staff very well. And trust your gut when it comes to their care. If something is off, yep. report it. Be loud. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Make sure your voice is heard. Yeah, if your loved one is like terrified when you're trying to clean their face, that's not a good sign. It's not
1: a good sign. So I was very moved by this episode. So, Andy, we made a donation. Yay. To the National Council on Aging, their funding goes to helping seniors improve all qualities of life, including preventing elder abuse. And I'd like to thank my other best girl, Hannah, who is currently working as a social worker in a hospice at a memory care facility. So she was the one who pointed me in the right direction when I asked for help finding the right cause or charity to help elderly people. And she said that funding support and resources that encourage and aid independence make seniors less likely to have to be dependent on abusive caretakers. We've got a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. American Horror Story Roanoke, episode two, featured a brief plotline with two characters based on Kathy and Gwen. Really? Yeah, we'll rewatch that one tonight. Okay. Tell us if you remember that storyline. In conclusion, I really hope as we approach Father's Day and you guys think about this terrible story that maybe this will inspire some of us to call or visit our grandparents or parents or any sort of loved one that may be in a nursing home or retirement home and spread a little love and cheer to brighten up their day.
0: And also pay attention to where there's smoke, there's probably a huge fucking fire. And raise alertness and awareness and be loud and make sure that your loved ones are taken care of.
1: Absolutely. I think that's definitely the moral of this story for sure. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. We love you guys. Bye. Bye.